Welcome to the 222nd episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we have a stupendous show for you today. We're going to talk about the new Smaller Echo show, a little bit about Google Assistant and what it can do, plus SmartThings. Samsung SmartThings released a whole bunch of new devices. We're going to talk about that, plus malware that's bricking IoT devices just for fun. And we've got some cool use cases for AI and microphones to talk about. Smart factories are coming to the U.S. There's a new Raspberry Pi. And I found a watch that's really smart. And then Kevin tells me he's already had one of those for a while. So all of this, plus a little bit more, including our guest this week, who is Komathy Stem, the CEO of Monarch Bio. She's going to be talking about how the world of clinical testing is influencing how we think about wearables and medical devices for the future. We're also going to hear from our sponsor, Dell Technologies, all about the open source EdgeX Foundry project. So gear up, get ready. Here we go, starting with a message from another one of our sponsors, Nordic Semiconductor. Nordic Semiconductor is launching an exciting new cellular IoT prototyping platform this August. The Nordic Thingy 91 Cellular IoT Prototyping Platform is perfect for building applications using LTEM, NB-IoT, and GPS. It's a rugged kit packed with over 13 different sensors, including high G-impact accelerometers, air quality and altitude, and many more. The Nordic Thingy 91 comes with an advanced asset tracking application pre-installed and with a free SIM card from iBasis to use anywhere in the world. In addition to cellular, the Thingy91 has an NRF52840 multi-protocol SoC on board, so you could build exciting hybrid applications using cellular with technologies such as Bluetooth Mesh and Thread and Zigbee. The Nordic Thingy91 will be available in August, and it is the most exciting thing in cellular right now. Stay tuned at nordicsemi.com. Gonna lie, Kevin. I would want one of these. It looks fun. <laughs> I kind of do too. I mean, I like to tinker with these kind of things. So, all mm. right. Well, that's the Nordic thingy ninety one. But I have the Amazon tiny thingy, which is the tiny Echo Show that was <laughs> released not with much fanfare. It was released this week, actually. So it's a ninety dollar five inch smaller Echo Show that's supposed to go on your nightstand. Is probably the ideal location for this. It's got a camera. You can shutter that camera manually. It's got the microphone. It does everything else that an Echo Show does, like talk to people and show your security cameras. So I don't know. Well, certain, certain security cameras. Certain, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It won't show mine. It will not show your Nest security cameras, but it will show your Ring Pro doorbell and I believe still your Arlo's. So, you know, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this looks like a direct response to Google's... Nest Hub. Nest Hub. I was like, I don't even know what it's called anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And you have that. So what do you think? I do have, I have the, well, it used to be called the Google Home Hub. I guess you can call it the Nest Hub now. Mine has a seven inch display, if I recall correctly. It's sitting right in front of me with the microphone off. And we actually have two of them. I have one in the office. I have one in the bedroom. There is no camera on it, which I kind of like. But with Echo Show 5, even though it has a camera, you can shutter it, as you said, which is 
important yeah, for the, a lot of people. The manual privacy. shutter is really important, I think. Having the yeah. confidence to be like, floop. Yeah. I mean, we have a manual shutter on the Lenovo Smart Display, the 10-inch one that is down on our kitchen island. And it's usually shuttered. I mean, we just don't need that, even though there's other cameras in the in that area anyway for security reasons and such. But I think that's important. It's it's smarter than if they're going to put the camera. And I think, honestly, every device with a camera should have a shutter at this point. I agree. The original Echo Show does not have a shutter. Right. So the question is really, should I buy this? Who should buy this? Well, I mean, if you're on the Madam A platform and you're in the market for a small display that's not too expensive, 90 bucks is reasonable. Yeah, I think it's worth it. You like your I, smaller Google device, right? Oh, I do, but I think it does a little bit more than the show devices, unless something has changed. Like YouTube TV, I, I will stream on this thing sometimes as I'm working and you know, watch, maybe I'll watch a soccer match or something. The services that I use may not be fully supported on the Echo Show. That's that's probably the best way to say it. That was very diplomatic. I like it. All right. <laughs> but if you're all in on Amazon, you don't want to watch a lot of YouTube. You know, the other thing is, I will say the Google, my favorite thing about my Google display is actually the photos it shows. Mm -hmm. And with Amazon, you have the option of storing your photos in an, an Amazon storage place. But who does that? I mean, my phone automatically links to Google Photos, which is awesome. And so everything I get, not everything, but anything that's in a certain file folder. Basically, if there's a picture in there that face matches to my my daughter or my family or friends, it just pops right up on my Google Photo screen. Right. And I do the same thing. I actually use a custom photo album that are just nothing but pictures of Norm the dog. Um, works great. Even if you're like an iPhone user, like you and I are both using Android right now, maybe you're not tied to Google Photos. Some people do actually use Google Photos for, for the free storage on iOS, but you're not likely uploading from iOS to Amazon's photo locker. Nope. 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 All right. So let us talk about the new smart things gear because Samsung basically launched a bunch of new stuff. <laughs> they did. Three things. Three, Three things. things. They're not terribly expensive because I think these are really aimed towards like, maybe you don't have a smart home yet and you want like a starter couple things to get, right? What do you start with? You know, you, obviously you get the smart things hub, but now they have a new $90 smart things camera, which is a Wi-Fi camera. They have a $18 Wi-Fi smart plug and a $10 smart bulb, which I think thought might be Bluetooth, but it's actually Zigbee. So you do need the, the hub for that. And that makes sense. And by the way, you can get the mm -hmm. third generation SmartThings hub on Amazon for like 66 bucks, I think. Yeah, it's, it's relatively cheap. So yay, I will say for anybody contemplating SmartThings, it's not the most user friendly platform. It's very powerful. You can do a lot, especially with automations, but there is a learning curve there. So be aware. It's fun. I like it. I have SmartThings. And yeah. There's a lot of people that are happy with it, and, and I don't think they're wrong. Obviously, they're happy. They're happy. That's fine. I find smart things to be very extensible as well. You could actually buy a non-supported device and either find or build your own driver to make it work, or device handler is what they call them. So if you're a programmer, you can do a lot more with this than you can with, I think, the other hubs on the market. So but for everyday people, I don't know. The, the problem that I guess I have is that we kind of stopped recommending Wink as that user-friendly hub. Yeah, this fills the hole in the market. But wait! 
But wait. We just got an email from, was it Gary? Yeah, sorry. I think it was Gary. Yeah. So Gary, in a very fun email, sent us, Wink is alive. And Gary's right. Wink appears to be, and I got this just a few hours ago, so I, I shot off an email to the Wink people, but they never respond. But he got an email from Wink saying they were reaching out to longtime customers to purchase the Wink Hub 2. And he expected it to be out of stock, but lo and behold, it was not. We went to check, and yep. it is not yep. out of stock. No, they have actually the, a lot of their uh, Wink branded products available now. If you're interested, I'd probably buy them from the Wink site direct. I know you can buy some of these devices on Amazon. And even though it's sold by Amazon and from Wink, the Hub 2 is $150 for some reason on Amazon. Wow, as opposed to 99 Yes, as opposed to 99. So, but the interesting bit to this news is we've been wondering for probably a year just because we haven't heard anything newsworthy out of Wink in that long. Are they still in the business? I mean, are they still making products? And the answer is yes. Yes, because they had been out of stock for a long time. We'll see. We also got software updates for the hub recently as well. Yeah. So, who knows? We'll keep an eye on Wink. Maybe they'll see. Gary knows. Gary knows. He'll see. How he feels. All right. Okay. So that's good news for Wink. Let's talk about <laughs> some bad news for the IoT. Oh, let's. It's been actually been a couple episodes where we've talked about or needed to talk about or raise awareness of a um, any kind of malware or any kind of security issues. And this one is really scary. It's uh, happened this week. It's called Silex, and it is basically breaking IoT devices. The only way to fix this, if you are infected, is to like totally reinstall the device firmware, which most people don't have access to the firmware of the devices to do that, number one. Um, number two, they probably don't know how to do that. So it's not good. But what's really scary is when we started finding out where this came from and who's responsible. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So this is kind of like my nightmare. This is like a teenage prank gone real? They trace the hacker back and it's it's a 14-year-old boy. I mean, basically, we're creating a world where 14-year-old boys can wreak havoc. And we all know 14-year-old boys and they're going to grow into lovely people, most of them. But at 14, very few people are, you know, discerning members of society. I don't know how else to put that. <laughs> yeah. So he built this and he's like, hey, I think I'm going to add more features. And in I don't know if he's going to turn it into a business. Do you think that's going to happen, Kevin? Or what? I would hope not. I would hope nobody would fund that business. Uh, he said that the project was kind of a joke, but now it's a full-time project. That's scary. Yeah. So, guys, we're building a world where we're giving the tools of disruption to 14-year-old boys. And yeah, 14-year-olds yeah. are going to take it. Boys, some girls, you know, that's what teenagers do. <laughs> they make poor decisions. It's not what I did. I did some hacking when I was that age, but it was mostly changing the names of characters in video games to me and my friends. Like, you know, so we would play a video game and instead of Dr. J and Larry Bird playing basketball, it would be me and my next door neighbor would be showing on the screen with our names. You, know? you monster. I know. I mean, that would, that's a fun hack. This not so much. Apparently he thinks it's fun. So, all right. Well, maybe one day we'll get microphones throughout our house that will detect Teenage boy hacking. But until then, schools and hospitals are using them for weird, weird stuff. So they are using them to detect 
quote unquote aggression. Which I understand because of all of the terrible tragedies we've had in public places where somebody just goes off and people lose their lives needlessly. But it gets back to that cost of privacy. I mean, do you want to be walking through a hospital knowing that you're being listened to the whole time? Maybe you won't even know, to be honest, because I don't know if it'd be disclosed to you. I think disclosure in something like this is important. And a promise to delete the recordings Mm. and some sort of independent audit to make sure that that's actually happening. Because I mean, think about things, again, we're dealing in schools, not necessarily hospitals, with teenagers. And teenagers say a lot of stupid stuff. And they should have the ability to say that stupid stuff and not have it haunt them for the rest of their lives. I agree. So this is on the scary side, right? And I guess the kicker here is the algorithm they're using to detect aggression isn't peer reviewed. It's not, it's not really proven. So no. you can set it off by, again, doing all kinds of things that teenagers actually often do, like scream <laughs> or. And clearly this isn't a hundred percent foolproof either. That's the other thing that I noticed. Um, the, there was a three year trial at the Valley Hospital in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And after three years, they were phasing them out because there were a lot of things like somebody speaking loud would set it off or or somebody slamming a cash register in the cafeteria would set it off. So they tweaked it to make it less sensitive. And then they missed a very agitated person who was screaming and pounding on a desk. So it's clearly not foolproof. I mean, people are weird. They can go from zero to 60 in like no time. So I'm like, uh, I've met those people. Yeah. <laughs> on the flip side. Here is like microphones, always on microphones, being used, possibly not transparently, and for something that may not even be accurate. Researchers at the University of Washington announced last week that they could detect heart attacks. So the breathing associated with heart attacks, they could figure it out. And they tried it on an Amazon Echo. So the idea is they envision some sort of echo-like device or microphone-based device that could listen for this in people's homes and then quickly send help if there's a heart attack. Now. That's, in my opinion, A, too invasive, and B, that problem is, I think, already solved with wearables. I would agree with you on that. I would say, though, that having a $40 device like an Echo Dot in someone's Mm. nursing home, for example, detecting that sort of thing, could be more cost effective than a wearable. True. Sure, sure. You moved to uh, Washington State, and now you're defending the University of Washington. Yep, that's that's exactly <laughs> what's happening. I, I don't actually, I would not want this. And I would be curious, right. though, if I were someone who has had a history of heart attacks, would that change my acceptance of something like this? And would uh, a robust data privacy policy, like, I really don't know. I'm like, right. And I don't know either, but I think about it and, and for people who have, you know, a history of heart disease or they've suffered a heart attack already, they probably don't mind shelling out money for monitoring devices that probably do a better job. Well, but what about insurance? So insurance could look mm. at this and they could be like, well, this is, I mean, the nice thing about insurance getting involved is it would have to be actually proven effective, unlike the aggression right. detection. <laughs> but if you could prove that, And then only the insight, so not the metadata itself, but just the insight of this person is having a heart attack. If there were enough data protections in place, I would do it. But there would have to be enough data protections in place. And we are not there yet as a people. Definitely not. So it's interesting what you can do with sound and Mm -hmm. also terrifying. Okay, let's talk about smart factories. The U.S. is home to two new smart factories. 
Schneider Electric last week. They have a factory in Lexington, Kentucky that builds load centers and safety switches. These are those things that are outside your house. Well, in, in industrial settings, they're out. I don't know where they are in industrial settings, but they control the electricity going in and out to various places in the building. That was a terrible explanation, but that's <laughs> what they do. And last week, we had the CIO of Schneider Electric on the show. Yay. Mm. If you missed that, go check her out. She's pretty cool. But what they're doing with their smart factory is they're turning it into a showcase for their ecostructure products, which is building management software that ties into you know, factory automation software and all of this other stuff. So the goal here is sustainability. I think it's interesting. They've got a couple other smart factories, one in France. I think there's one in Mexico. And they, they've seen actually things like a 20% reduction in mean time to repair on their critical equipment. They've eliminated 90% of their paperwork or eliminated paperwork by 90%. So some of those things are kind of cool, I think. The investment to actually implement this may seem like a lot, but when you start looking at the ROI, it, I think the payback is pretty quick. I think if this is the investment it takes to like put broadband in your home, that's a cost. But yeah, the value that sits on top of that is amazing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's just me. All right. The other smart factory was announced this week. It is Ericsson. They are going to build their first fully automated smart factory in the U.S. Unlike the Schneider Electric factory, this is going to be built. That one already exists. And it is going to build advanced antenna system radios. So this is like your multi-MIMO antennas. Those are fun. So Ericsson doesn't have a location. I guess they're still negotiating with various economic development groups, my guess is. You want a smart factor to show people how cool your place is. They also did announce a new R&D site, which just happens to be where you used to live. Austin! Ta-da. Austin actually has a lot of 5G research. AT&T and Intel have a research center there. They've got lots of wireless engineers there. So this makes sense. The point here, smart factories, they're all the rage this week. Or maybe June is smart factory month. Who knows? (laughs) Also on the smart factory front, there is a new Raspberry Pi that is crazy powerful. This is the Raspberry Pi 4. They're saying it's designed for industrial IoT applications. It probably can be used for that. But of course, I was on campus with my CompSci class and I saw this news and we all want one. And we're not industrial. We're industrious, but we want to buy one of these just for our code projects and other little efforts. It's got a quad-core ARM Cortex-A72 processor running at Mm -hmm. 1.5 gigahertz. That's crazy. I think my last MacBook ran at that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I took a look to see because, of course, everybody asked me when I told them about this news, well, what's different from the Raspberry Pi I already have? You know, because some of them have the Pi 3 or, or older ones. The price starts at $35, gets you a gig of RAM. But you also have options uh, at $45 and $55 to get two or four gig of RAM, which that's great for like for the types of things that we would use it for. Also, it's USB-C for the power, which is awesome. It used to be USB mini, I yes, think, it was for the, mini for the old ones. Yeah, and they have added two. Well, added one, so it now has two HDMI outputs. Uh, although they're mini HDMI uh, ports, so you can run up to 4K on two simultaneous HDMI displays. Yeah, and that's really interesting for the industrial IoT people because you could start playing with things to set up sensors. 
You could actually put this in and monitor the information from those sensors. You could run applications on this that are fairly sizable. So, hey, 35 bucks or maybe 50. (laughs) The other thing is from an industrial standpoint, I mean, like most consumers probably just buy the Pi and use it to to make it like a desktop computer or Linux box, et cetera. But having the um, IO pins and the ability to add, oh gosh, several dozen options of other radios, other sensors, and, and so on, really, I think, speaks to the industrial market. I mean, this, that's exactly what we used for our pancreas in the cloud, our, our hacking diabetes project. We added a an RF radio hat uh, that fit onto our pie. So you get so many choices. Yeah. And I'm assuming that there will be ruggedized cases for this, because that is the other thing. A pie is just a board. You can't just leave that in an industrial environment and expect right. it to last. Yeah, I've bought cases. I didn't buy ruggedized ones, but you know, for five or ten bucks, I usually encase mine in. I have one right here in my hand. In fact, it's a clear case, so I can see the parts and ooh and ah over it. Ooh. Even though nothing moves, I don't know why ooh and ah. Over it's it. a computer. Yeah, if something moves on that thing, or you see sparks, you should probably unplug it. <laughs> yeah, that would be bad. It would. And then I saw this device, and I got super excited. This is the Polar smartwatch. What it does is it's the Polar Ignite. It basically tells you where you are at in your day or if you should exercise or maybe not train a little, train too hard. It combines like your sleep data, your workout data, all of this to help you optimize your workouts. And I like this because I love my Fitbit Charge 3, which is what I'm currently wearing. You know, I love counting steps. I love all that. But at the end of the day, it doesn't actually tell me how to change to, to improve things, right? It does actually give me a, a nudge every few hours to get up and walk. But for the most part, it doesn't feel super smart. It just feels like a, a data logging device. But this, this feels smart. So I, I thought this was cool. Yeah, it's not terribly expensive either. It's um, $230 for the device, the Ignite GPS. So it has GPS for people who run or bike, et cetera, and so on. Your point about the actual smartness of using the data, analyzing it, and giving you actionable information is is key. It's not the first watch to do that. And I say that because I have a Garmin Forerunner 245 on my wrist right now that I've had for about six weeks. Pretty much does the same thing. And I, I found more value from that than I would have expected. Um, instead of just telling you, for example, how many hours of sleep you got and what the different stages were and the time in those stages... It actually has a feature called body battery. And basically, if your body battery is 100, you're fully charged and you want to go train hard or go run a marathon, today's the day to do it, etc. It does that and also reduces the body battery based on how many steps you've taken and your heart rate throughout the day and your you know your workouts and so on. Um, so it's, it's actually, it is useful. There have been days where I'm like, I think I'm okay to go do a long run. And I look at the watch, I'm like, mm, the watch doesn't think so, so I think I will rest up today. So what I'd like you to do this is highly informal, but I think it'd be interesting, is to having now experimented with the body battery for a few weeks, I would like without you looking at your body battery to guesstimate where it's at at the same point in time each day, right? Guesstimate where it's at and write that down and then check it and, you know, see how on point, because I'm curious, like you may feel awesome and it's like, well, you're not so awesome. So do you want to do that? I can do that. And in fact, I mean, before I had this feature, I would just go off of my feel, right? Yeah. And there were times when I felt great and I'd go say, I'm going to go do an eight mile loop over around the, on the trail near my house. And yet 
I'd get two or three into it and I'm like, what was I thinking today? My body is just not responding well, right? So it's, let's see what happens. Let's conduct a, an experiment of one. And if anyone else has anything <laughs> like this, feel free to follow along and do that experiment too. Just because I, sometimes I worry that like, they're influencing us, the computers. <laughs> well, you're trusting the algorithm for sure. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. But Garmin and Polar have used both of their devices before. I still have a Polar smartwatch. They've been working towards this with different indices and, and, and such. And to be honest, I feel just from my experience that they're worth trusting All right. in terms of the algorithms. I like that. That's a good thing. Yeah. Okay. For those of us with a, I was going to say, who are too lazy to clean their house, but really this is for anyone. <laughs> Google Assistant can now support and control robot mops. They could control Roomba vacuums for a while. Yeah, but this is a way for developers to add support to the smart mops that are out there. You know, Roomba or iRobot makes some of those. I know others do as well. So what Google has done is basically extended what the vacuum class was for, for developers to make skills and such. To now it has a mop device type. So, eh, I mean, I don't have one of these. I wish, kind of wish I did, but... Uh, I don't think they clean very well. I'm sure they're better now, but the last one I tested, it was not an awesome clean. But that was like the first generation Brava. So... Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that could be. It could have come a long way by now. All right. So, it feels like we're at that moment in our show when it is time to talk to our listeners. It is time for the IoT Podcast Hotline, which is sponsored by Afero. With the fifth largest IoT patent portfolio in the world, Afero provides a proven IoT platform that doesn't risk your brand. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market and 10x higher activation rates. You should learn more at afero.io. All right. This month on the IoT Podcast Hotline, if you call us at 512-623-7424, we are giving away a WISE sensor pack and camera. So yes, you could buy this for 40 bucks, but you could also maybe win it. So I say give us a call and maybe we'll also answer your smart home question. This week's question comes from Bobby. Let's hear it. Hi, my name is Bobby and my wife and I just bought a house. And while I have many other questions about other recommendations, the thing I'm looking at right now is leak detector sensors. I was given a Honeywell Lyric uh, one for free and like it, but when I was looking at buying more, I realized how expensive they were. So I was just trying to figure out recommendations for other ones. I know some of my thoughts were the Samsung SmartThings, but I didn't know if there was any other leak detectors that you guys recommended, uh, smart leak detectors. Thank you very much. Bye. Oh, Bobby, I was so excited because you have already in your hot little hands, my favorite leak detector, which is kind of expensive. But the Honeywell Lyric Wi-Fi water leak and freeze detector is a baller device. And I like it so much because it's accurate, but it's also got this long tail that wraps around pipes. It detects, like I said, leaks and freezing pipes. And I think it's just so much more effective than waiting for like a puddle to like reach a sensor that's just sitting there on the floor. So it feels like you get more coverage, but it does come at a price. And that price is 80 bucks for that sensor, which is a lot. And it only works with the Echo ecosystem. It does not work with Google Assistant. So that is the one you already have. I'm going to recommend if you are hardcore interested in leak detection to go with one of the smart home 
whole home leak detection monitors. They are pricey though. The cheaper one is the Flow by Moen. That is a $500 device. What you do. Yeah, but what it does is it measures the water flowing through your pipes and uses an algorithm. Here we are again to detect (laughs) changes in water pressure. And it will detect not just like catastrophic leaks, but it'll also detect slow leaks or things like a toilet flapper that's not secure, not not flapping. Not not flapping. <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I don't know how to describe it. You got to replace the flapper if you hear the water running all the time. It actually it uses a lot of water. Who knew? And this is awesome because it automatically turns off your water. So is it expensive? Yes. Is it possible you might get a discount from your insurance? Maybe, but it's not going to be a huge discount. No, but the key difference is it's not just a detector. It can actually shut the water off and you're not going to find that with just a sensor. I mean, there's lots of sensors that will do detection. There is. If you're not home when they detect it, well, that's a problem. Then you got to call a friend. So the other option in this category is VIN. It's the same thing. This actually needs a plumber to install it. The other one does too. When you're messing with your water main, you should probably get a plumber is my recommendation. The FIN is $700. FIN is a company that was spun out of Belkin. It also was created in partnership with the plumbing company called Upanor. So it's pricier, but it has quality brands behind it. I've never tested any of these devices because, well, because now I've moved into a rental house and beforehand they weren't actually ready for testing. So these are relatively new, but... So I don't know how you feel about that. What about the uh, buoy folks? Oh, yes, because you're already in the Honeywell ecosystem earlier this year, I think it was March, Honeywell actually, it's no longer Honeywell, it's Residio is the smart home company that's behind the smart home Honeywell gear. So the gear is still Honeywell, the company making it now is called Residio because it was spun out. So Residio bought buoy, which was an MIT lab space company that also made a whole home device. Now. It is unclear exactly what Honeywell is going to do with that. They talk about making their sensor and leak detection system smarter, but you cannot buy the buoy system anymore. So I don't know what to tell you there. (laughs) Right. I mean, as far as other non-whole home options, I mean, there's there's a number on the market that are probably less expensive than the Lyric. Yes. But we were really flogging the whole home really hard. So (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, I mean, if you want to do it right and you have the budget for it, I think that's the way to go. But if not, you know, you can do it for a lot less. You just want to look for ones like the Lyric that have uh, like an extendable cable to improve your coverage of leak detection. Yes. So One option that also has an extendable sensor cable that can be like, oh, I'm freezing or I'm wet and extend your coverage is the D-Link Wi-Fi water sensor. It's a little cheaper. It's 60 bucks from D-Link as opposed to the 80 bucks for the Honeywell version. It's also Wi-Fi and kind of performs the same function. I can't remember if I've tried this or not, but with this one, it doesn't have an integrated siren and the Honeywell definitely does because you have to like disconnect it to actually stop the siren, which was one of my problems when I reviewed the Honeywell. I was like, oh, this is kind of a pain, but really useful when there's actually a leak in your house. Less fun when you're testing and leaking things left and right, but really good when there's an actual leak. Those are options. There's also, without the cable, you know, for 20 bucks, you can get a Samsung SmartThing water leak detection sensor that you just stick near troublesome spots. 
Right. And that just has contacts on the bottom of it, not any cable or anything like that. So, in there, and there's several of those. I mean, tons of companies make those. If you buy one of those, a lot of them are cheaper because they use a Zigbee or a Z-Wave radio, and you're going to need a hub. So, just bear that in mind if you're... But their battery life will be amazing. The D-Link one has to actually be plugged in, it looks like. So, keep that in mind. Lots of options. Many options. So... For my money, if I were doing it all over again, I would probably do the smart home, whole home detection. But I would also, mm-hmm. before I buy it, call my insurance company and be like, hi, is there a way to get a discount if I do this? Just in case. Mm-hmm. All right. So that hopefully answers your question, Bobby, or gives you a lot of options and you might be overwhelmed by them and we're sorry. But thank you for calling. And everyone else, please give us a call. 512 512- 623-7424, and you will be entered to win the WISE Sensor Pack and Camera. All right. Now, I would love for everyone to stay tuned for our guest, who is Komathy Stem, the CEO of Monarch Bio. She is going to be talking about how we can, it's actually relevant to what we talked about earlier, because she's talking about how we can certify wellness and medical devices as accurate. So these algorithms that we're relying on, like maybe your body battery, they would actually look at that and see how accurate it is for in a peer-reviewed kind of setting. So she's going to talk about why we need that, the future of medicine, and a lot more. Stay tuned for her. But first, a message from this week's sponsor, Dell Technologies. Hey, everyone. We are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor, This week's sponsor is Dell Technologies, and I have Jason Shepard, who is CTO of IoT and Edge at Dell Technologies. So Jason, last time we talked about Dell Technologies' efforts, it was around EdgeX Foundry. So let's start off with an update about where that is and why it's so important. You know, we took a look at the market actually back in 2015, and we're looking at all the platforms that were proliferating and saw this problem, you know, shaping where there was this need to have more flexibility in how solutions were deployed. Taking these cloud native principles that you see, you know, spring all over the place in, in cloud architectures and extending them to the edge where you have the ability to kind of rapidly deploy different functions around your kind of common elements. So think of EdgeX for IoT as like what Android did for mobile and the ability to create a marketplace of commercial value-add around just enough in terms of open APIs to bind together all the inherently heterogeneous components within IoT. So we, we architected it based on the feedback from a bunch of partners and customers, then put it into vendor-neutral neut- open source as a project within the Linux Foundation. So that was you know, the, the initial goal, come up with the right architecture, collaborate in vendor-neutral open source. And then once that gets going, then you use that as a vehicle to create a commercial value add on top of it. I mean, imagine the internet without open interoperability. So EdgeX is really about creating that open baseline that then you can start building value without reinventing the wheel. Excellent. All right. So what is Dell's strategy with EdgeX and how does that relate to your open edge stack? Yeah. So our strategy is get that going, but, you know, foundationally we're, we're about creating consistent infrastructure. I always say we build the gut so our partners can bring the glory. We want this open ecosystem you know, attached to that so that you can then scale out relationships. You can have best and breed solutions coming together around a common core. You will attach our security and management tools to this stack, that open API. Of course, you can use them standalone, but when used with EdgeX and those APIs, you get the benefit of the vendor neutral ecosystem. So our strategy really is to build out infrastructure on top of it. So what is the status of EdgeX right now? 
we're going 1.0, it's going commercial. You know, there's actually companies that are basing business models around, you know, edgex. Um, IOTech, as an example, is a company that's creating a red hat model around uh, offering commercially supported versions of it. Then you have companies like Redis. Redis Edge is a, a database optimized for time series data, but then they've also, they've also got support for TensorFlow, for analytics. They've made a decision to kind of plug into it. So you can, you kind of replace the existing database in there with Redis if you'd like. Wipro is out there publicly talking about using edgex. There's a whole initiative sponsored by Intel around open retail based on edgex. So it's just examples of commercial value. Downloads are going up very quickly. Uh, April, uh, there's 2,500 downloads, you know, May 4,500, and it's just starting to ramp. So we're definitely seeing that ramp hit out in the market. Excellent. And where can we go to find out more about Dell Technologies and the Open Edge stack? DellTechnologies.com slash IoT is a good starting point. And then there's a bunch of links off of there to go learn more. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Kamathi Stim, who is CEO and founder at Monarch Bio Networks. Hi, Kamathi, how are you doing? Great, thanks for having me, Stacey. Oh, I'm really excited because we are going to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is this concept of digital snake oil and the idea that we have all of these companies and devices that are coming onto the market that say, hey, I'm going to make your life better, make you healthier. But as consumers, we really don't have a sense of how accurate any of these are. And we don't understand why our doctor may not want our Fitbit data or random other data from our connected mattress or something. So you're going to tell us a little bit about why things are the way they are. So let's first get started with your background, because it ties directly into why you founded your company. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Stacey. Well, I actually am from the pharmaceutical background. I have been a clinical researcher for about 20 plus years across multiple pharmaceutical companies. And I've led teams that actually execute clinical trials for the development of new treatments, new drugs, new devices, and so forth. And about six years ago, I started heading up an innovation team to figure out how could we actually reduce the time and cost of these trials because they make up a good 70% of what it takes to make a new drug, which is about $2.6 billion in about 12 years nowadays. And as I was doing this, I really realized that, you know, what we do in clinical trials is we generate data. And to ensure the safety and efficacy of a drug that goes out on the market, But what I realized is that we highly rely on the data that's generated in the clinic. And all of these new wearables and sensors that are coming out gave us the possibility of collecting data in between the clinic, which is a completely new set of data that we've never had before that could really help us understand how patients are doing in between clinic visits in the context of their own home. So that's what got me really excited about the Internet of Things and all the devices. But I also think it's really important just having a lot of data isn't enough. You actually have to transform it into evidence that you can trust and that can truly inform not only the research and treatment of new drugs, but also how it can actually influence how those drugs are used or how care is provided. So that's a super tall order. Let's start there because that seems like the core of the issue, which is, it sounds like it's a mix of, hey, is this device reliable and accurate consistently, probably across a bunch of populations? And then the other is, 
is this device actually useful at detecting or monitoring a specific disease? And then I don't know if there's another side to this. Is there? Yeah, well, let's start with devices. I think that's a a good way to start. And maybe we can use a, a case example. What Monarch does is we create patient research networks. These are communities of people that have a condition, and they are interested in contributing their data and pooling it together to give better insights for research. So we started a network in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And in IPS, which is a rare lung disease, the way they measure progression of disease is by doing a pulmonary function test in the clinic. Now, since then, there's been some companies that have devised a barometer, which is what measures your lung capacity and exertion effort when you blow, measures the elasticity of your lungs. They're manufacturers that develop devices that could actually measure that in the home. So a home spirometer. Now, how they get this FDA cleared, a 510K clearance, they call it. And basically what that does is it tells you that 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 particular device will consistently measure a person's lung function in the home. That's all it tells you. But how do you use it? How do you... How do you know that it correlates? And that's where research is really important. So we integrate that into a clinical trial. And we said, we want to know if patients can actually consistently use this device from the home accurately, meaning the measurement that they take from the device and the measurement of using an in-clinic spirometer is the same. So I think that's really important to make sure that we're doing trials and research to validate Not that the device works, but that it actually works in the context in which it's going to be used. Because these things will be used to inform decisions. And it's not the same as, hey, my app for, you know, directions didn't quite work. This is, hey, I could make a a clinical decision on treatment wrong and really hurt someone. So it's really important that we validate it in the context that it's used. We integrated that device into the trial and we measured the patients using the spirometer from the home as well as we measured that data or we compared that data to the data that we generated in the clinic and looked for a strong correlation. Okay. This is interesting because a spirometer is actually a tool that has been used for probably not forever, but this is an established medical device. So the only new thing here was connecting it and then making sure that patients could use it accurately in the home, correct? Well, uh, there was another aspect of it in clinic spirometers, um, you had to do a lot of calibration. So even in clinical trials, when I've used in clinic spirometers, we needed to train all the folks to make sure they were calibrating it right. Now, these new in-home spirometers actually calibrate themselves. And then the patients blow and it'll tell them immediately whether they had a good blow or not. So it gives them direct feedback whether they use the device right. And then the data gets connected and, and brought in virtually. Okay. Awesome. So that is very different than me saying like one of my products that I really think it would be perfect for IoT in the home and for medicine would be like a device where when my child has a cough, I could have her cough into my Amazon Echo, for example, and have the AI on the device say, oh, that is totally something you should go to the doctor right away. Or that sounds like the common cold. Don't stress just yet. I lived in fear of my daughter getting croup or something terrifying. And I was like, is that the croup cough? But I'm a little weird. Anyway, so what happens if you have an entirely new device that maybe isn't a medical device, or if you want to bring something like a common wearable or an Amazon Echo or something else into maybe clinical testing, what might that process look like or what needs to happen there? 
Or maybe it won't happen at all because that's crazy. No, 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 no. It's really important. And actually, we're starting to introduce more of these devices into clinical trials because the reality is more and more patients are using these devices and bringing it into the doctor and saying, so what do you think of this data? And the clinicians are like, oh, I don't know. There's a lot of data. I don't normally see it. So we're starting to... The clinical trials, my experience is they write the medical books of the future, right? So we need to start introducing devices and doing research in the same way that care is going. An example of how we might, what I've previously done in introducing some of these wearables. So for example, we had a study for hemophilia. Now, one of the, the challenges with hemophilia is people accommodate to their disease. They're afraid they're going to get a bleed. So they stop moving around a lot or participating in activities and so forth. And so a way to measure the impact on the quality of life, typically what we've done is we've asked questions of the patient. So we do surveys, but the surveys are very, you know, they're not very objective. They're pretty subjective of what the patient might be thinking. Um, but if we put a Fitbit on them and we actually measure their activity very passively, we might actually see, and we actually did see a difference in patients as they took the treatment and they had less be- bleeds, they became more confident and actually became more active. But we could objectively measure now that impact outside of the clinic in their daily lives. That's a powerful way to use that data. That is awesome. And so when you were doing that, how did you have to, I guess, evaluate the Fitbit for, was it an actual Fitbit or was it something else? We did a variety of different centers, tested a variety of different centers. I think it's a matter of, you know, what's the precision in which you want the data. If you need really precise measurements, and oftentimes what you'll do is you'll try to validate the measurement in an earlier trial so that you can use it in a registration trial, for example, with the FDA. And that's when you're submitting kind of your major studies for approval for a drug. But if you wanted to, so it just depends on what the, is it a primary endpoint? Is it a secondary endpoint? Is it more of a impact and quality of life? And you're going to use that data to support discussions around getting reimbursed for that drug because it has a major impact on the quality of life of a patient and their productivity. So it just depends on how you're going to use it as to what grade of precision you need. And that's when you go to different devices. But I think also it's important to say, hey, if I'm developing something where I'm going to encourage my clinician to monitor activity in the patient and you want them to not have to go buy a lot of new devices, you want to use something that's commercially available and commonly used. So it kind of depends. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I imagine you could cut costs and boost participation if you had something like, hey, if you have an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, you're wearing what I need to, you know, enroll you in the study. So exactly. And that broadens access for more people to participate in the trial, which gives us a more diversity of patients, which then makes the data more generalizable when it hits the market. Although then we have to deal with like compliance issues because I can't be the only person who's been dissatisfied with their step count and handed it off to their kid to be like, hey, take this for a while. I know I'm only lying to myself, but is that something people are <laughs> people are thinking about when they're thinking about uh, medical testing or compliance in the home? Absolutely. I mean, we're always looking at compliance and adherence, but then remember in clinical research and clinical trials, people are usually more compliant in that than they are in the real world. So it's kind of an interesting space to figure out, okay, this is the level of compliance we achieved in the trial. Will we achieve that same level 
in the real world. And that's why it's really important, even after we do these trials, that we continue to do trials in the real world and do things on, you know, bring your own device, bring your own wearable or whatever, because then we really understand what happens in the context of the real world. Nice. All right. So you had mentioned earlier that clinical trials are kind of the future of medicine or where we're heading. So I'm curious with what you're doing today and where you guys with Monarch want to take clinical trials, where do you think the future of medicine is heading? At Monarch, our vision is that research is integrated into care and that we have a truly learning health system that's dynamic and adapts very quickly. So you're not waiting to have a visit with your doctor. You're generating data, and the data is informing you. In that same way, we're constantly integrating research into care. Then we're learning very quickly, and new solutions are being adopted very quickly. So to give you an example, when a new medical or device or procedure or drug is, is approved, it takes another, I believe, seven years for it to actually be adopted and integrated into care. Oh, Unbelievable, right? That is so long. It's, it's, there, there is a huge gap between when something is in, approved and integrated into care. We imagine a world where if you're constantly integrating research into care, then you're going to be able to accelerate that adoption. In addition, more and more clinical decisions will be very data-driven because it's almost like every decision you're making is a trial of N of 1 because you've got so much data in your hands. And as we get to more personalized and customized medicine, that's the way we need to operate. I like it. All right. So if we're moving towards this world, I know that we've been talking about what you call as regulatory grade evidence, but what else do we need? It feels like we might need our physicians to to change a little bit. And I don't know if there's much we can do as patients, but, but tell me where are the holes? Well, I think a huge, huge hole that we have right now is we've put a major investment across the U.S digitizing all of our health records. And there's been a lot of work put into that, but all of that digital data is sitting in silos. So it's really important that in order for us to really get robust evidence, we need to get larger pools of data and people need to share their data in a way that's for the greater good. And we have to figure out how do we do that in a secure and compliant way so that privacy isn't lost, as well as that we we can have innovations on top of that, but the data itself is not the IT. I think we have to get over this, that whoever holds the data has the IT. It's what you do with that data that makes the difference. So we need to shift from owning data to accessing data and sharing data. So I think this is awesome, except I read a story probably probably a couple months back about it was a CPAP machine that insurers were paying for and insurers were gathering data from these connected CPAP machines. And they were looking to see if the patients were actually using it. And if they weren't, they were cutting off insurance payments for the CPAP machine rental. In one hand, I get it. You don't want to pay for something that someone's not using. But on the other hand, the patients didn't actually realize this was happening, nor did their doctors. And so I think it's good to talk about privacy. It's even better to talk about it in the context of how we're going to pay for things and how who's going to have access to data, not just to build a business, but even to make kind of care decisions. 
I don't know if you've got any ideas around this, but I feel like I feel like we've got to do something before we start implementing too much data into the medical realm. Yeah, I think transparency is really important. We have to be super transparent on who has access to the data, giving people the right to make a decision on who has access to the data and what they're doing with the data. You you use an interesting example because my mother actually uses a CPAP machine and she's well aware that if she doesn't use it, her benefits get removed or reduced or whatever. And certainly she gains it a little bit. Like she's like, okay, I, I put it on for a minimum of five hours and then I take it off and sleep. And I was like, mom, the point of it is so that, you know, you don't, you don't get hurt during the process because you have sleep apnea. But anyway, at least she's using it for those four or five hours, right? But she's very aware that they're measuring her and what the consequences will be. So it's actually helping her be more adherent than I think she would if she wasn't. However, I don't disagree with you that you have to, there needs to be transparency. There needs to be understanding of how it's being used and what's the greater good that's happening as a result of it being used. That's fair. Because in some cases, like I might have no problem donating, you know, my blood test data, or maybe it's my echocardiograms or whatever data that might be interesting to science, right? I might say, yeah, I totally want you to have this data for research. But I would balk considerably at giving that data to an insurance firm, or maybe to my corporation as part of like a wellness plan. I think that raw data is something that it's not... It should be protected because this kind of data can be used to infer some really crazy things. And over time, we'll make more correlations and we will be able to infer a lot more from that data. And I don't think there's a way to put that genie back in the bottle once it's out. Yeah, I I would agree with you. And I think, you know, we do have to be really careful as to where the data goes. And I think at Monarch, we believe the patients own their data their data, they're generating it. They're the ultimate owners of it. They should have the right to determine where it goes. What's interesting is when you're really sick with a life-threatening or chronic debilitating disease, you're more than willing to contribute that data. One, just just so in hopes that a treatment will be developed for yourself or for your, your children, or two, just that you've had really great care And a lot of people would think, I had really great care from this facility, and I'm going to donate a bunch of money to them. And not everyone has those means. And so for some folks, even just understanding how valuable the contribution of their data is, is really important for them, because it it can be a gift as well. And what about doctors and medical professionals? Because I know that I will come to my doctor and I'll be like, here's my data. And they're like, please take it out of my face. I don't want it. How do we get them? And, And maybe, maybe it is, you know, clinically valid data, but how do we get them on board and give them the tools to actually be able to use this information in providing care? Yeah, I think that's why clinical research is really important because peer-reviewed, validated, trusted sources of information right now are peer-reviewed articles, publications, and books in medical schools. So it's really important. That's a way to deliver the information to them in a way that they're used to, as well as it's really important to integrate into their workflow. They're super busy, overworked, and when you come in with a data set they're not used to seeing or, you know, many of them want to help, but they don't have the time. So time is the currency that we have to figure out how is isn't increased by the introduction of more data. So I think those are two important things to think about is making sure we're delivering evidence through publications and peer reviews, and two, that it's integrated into workflow. 
Awesome. All right. Kamathi, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I feel like I've learned a lot and I'm actually cautiously optimistic about kind of advancing medical care. Thank you. Yeah, there's an incredible opportunity ahead of us with both technology and medicine and patients themselves being more empowered to be part of the solution. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.